Hi, and welcome to episode five of Telekinesis, Data-to-Data Conversations. I'm Daniel Raskin, your host, and here with my co-host, Mark. Hello, Mark. How's it going, Daniel? Always great to be here. Yeah, it's great. And uh, we actually have a special guest today. We have uh, Tim Berglund from Confluent. He's the Senior Director of Developer Experience. Hey, Tim. Mark, Daniel, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for joining. You're uh, you're on episode number five, so this is a, this is big. You know, this podcast is uh, exploding across uh, the internet right now. It's got legs under it. It does. Legs. It's got GPU GPU powered legs under it. That's pretty. Exciting. That's right. We can parallel process more content than anyone can think of tied to a podcast. Um, so uh, you know, there's a lot going on. Maybe before we get started, you know. Um, Tim, tell us a little bit about yourselves, yourself, yourselves. I'm talking as if you you are parallel uh, compute. There's multiple Timbers. Yes. Um, yes, well, we'll uh, we'll we'll introduce our, our royal selves now. Yeah, um, to, to give us the download. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you got it. So I uh, have a background as a as a developer. I started my career writing firmware, um, and Actually, I miss that. It's kind of nice that that can be a hobby again now. You know, you've got sort of the Arduino world and everything. You can, you can get back into that. It's great. But uh, then spent a while as a, as a full stack uh, Java web developer, and eventually from there migrated into the world of training. I was I was an independent consultant for a while, and I said, hey, this whole training thing is kind of fun. I, I like it. I'm good at it. And, you know, it was, a, it was a good it was a good way to make money as an independent person. Um, and from there, moved into the kind of the technology evangelist, conference speaker role, um, and uh, have contributed to a few different companies in uh, the last six years uh, doing that kind of work. And right now, I run the developer experience team at Confluent. Um, a lot of, uh, I think, a more common term uh, for that team is developer relations. So anything that our developer community needs to be healthy, to be a community, and to have the resources that they need, developers, architects, operators, people who are actually using the Confluent platform and Kafka, uh, anything they need to be successful, documentation, tutorial videos, conference talks, meetups, uh, Slack, uh, community Slack workspace, all that kind of stuff, uh, my team runs those things. We just we wanna make it easy and if possible fun for people to do what they need to do with Kafka. So when I hear uh, Confluent and I hear of Kafka, I think lots of uh, streaming data. It makes me think of Edge and IoT and just like this ever-changing world of more and more things coming online and having to figure out how to handle um, the management and flow of that data. What, what's your take there? Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're seeing in the world tied to uh, um, Kafka and some of the, the hot use cases that you're coming across. Yeah. Um, well, IoT comes up a lot. Uh, there are some, um, uh, strangely, automotive seems to come up a lot now. Cars. I, I don't. I don't know if it's dawned on you yet that new cars are connected devices. But you you sort of drive an IoT thing. You know the the typical consumer IoT examples are like your Nest thermostat and your Alexa, yeah. whatever it is. But no, your car too. Uh, so certainly IoT is common and. Um, a lot of financial services companies are yeah. uh, are doing things. We uh, we had a guest blog post sometime last year from Capital One, and um, uh, I happen to be a Capital One card holder, and I, I I see their streaming data technology in action, 
if I accidentally have my phone open when I'm, when I'm doing a charge, I can actually see the notification pop up of the charge less than a second after the transaction completes. It's kind of cool. Um, and um, some other use cases, uh, uh, media. There was another interesting guest blog post from uh, New York Times on how they store uh, their, their, really their archival data in a big giant Kafka topic. So wow. all kinds of cool things going on. Yeah, and Mark, Mark and I were laughing when you were talking about automotive because we've been living in, uh, in that realm lately. When, when you think about a car and how many smart things are actually running on it and all the data that's coming off of that, I mean, it's essentially a, a platform on wheels, right? Yep, yep. it's a uh, distributed system on wheels. Actually, that's the first time I've uttered those words, and I already want to take them back because that's <laughs> terrifying. We don't want that. Oh my goodness. So let's forget that I said that, but let's go back to your platform on wheels. That sounds like something I would still get in and close the door and drive at high speed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really could have used a, you know, a connected car alert last, last, uh, yesterday. I, I left my headlights on overnight and got to my car yesterday morning to come to work and it was, it was dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's, you know, one of the 75 processors in a, a 2018 car. I just made that number up, but one of those processors is dedicated to turning off your lights for you. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Tim. So, you know, I feel, you know, you and I, we have this special bond because, because of our co-presentations we did. Yes, at, we do. Booth that uh, Strata. So some people have college friends. We have Strata. Strata friends. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to kind of, you know, get your take a little bit. I, you know, you heard uh, the Connecticut stance on, you know, this new extreme data economy that we find ourselves today and, you know, the increased importance of being able to do ad hoc analysis on streaming workloads. So uh, I was hoping you could maybe, you know, give us your take on, you know, the importance of that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Totally. So um, the focus you know, when I when I try to explain to people, um, and I, I I think in all of this, I'll just bracket this with um, my orientation to the problem is always how can I help developers be successful? How can I help architects think of how to use this thing? Um, you know, of course, Confluent has its go-to-market and and uh, all of its proper positioning, and and yeah, I hope I'm not departing from that. But I'm always thinking, hey, somebody's in the trenches. Somebody's trying to build something. They don't know how to do it. How can I help them? The concerns of that person are usually around real-time processing. Like I, I, I have some uh, SLA on some result, and I need to, I need to know within 500 milliseconds if that transaction was fraudulent, or I need to raise the alert uh, within 50 milliseconds of the fifth error message happening, or something. You know, um, and that's that's the kind of problem that we normally deal with. Um, which isn't really ad hoc analysis, right? The thing I was just describing is, is, is not ad hoc data exploration. Now, we have recently announced, the, well, last fall, we uh, started releasing developer previews of a technology called KSQL. It's an open source SQL-like string processing language uh, that you know, can use the SQL-like syntax and, and define uh, real-time string processing jobs to run on data in Kafka topics. And with that, you can begin to do certain kinds of ad hoc analysis, right? You can have a command line and you can simply type queries in and get real-time results. And so there's a there's a little bit, like it, it pokes its nose into that ad hoc world. But honestly, the way people 
are deploying it is uh, it's now a simpler way to write those kinds of stream processing jobs I was talking about a minute ago. Like within uh, 500 milliseconds, I need to know that the thing was fraudulent. Within 20 milliseconds of the last error, I need to I need to raise the alert. That that kind of stuff, right? Which is not ad hoc. Uh, it's it's the real time stuff where you have through some development process refined an algorithm that you're now executing in KSQL or in Kafka streams against data in a Kafka cluster. The ad hoc analysis stuff, like I've got this, you know, I've got all this streaming data and I now really with my data scientist hat on, I need to go in and do some experimentation. The, the true ad hoc analysis isn't so much where we live. I mean, we can do some of that with KSQL, but um, as you as you get to the more sophisticated kinds of things, then we end up saying, well, hey, you know, we have partners. And it's folks like you who provide uh, a, a platform where a data scientist could sit down and say, oh, okay, this sounds like something, you know, this this looks like ad hoc analysis to me. I have a free hand to operate and do what I want and do it at scale and you know, do it very quickly uh, just because the way your platform is built. So I, I uh, hear what you're saying if, uh, from a couple of different angles, but the thing that really pops out to me is if you think about the three Vs, the volume, uh, velocity, variety, um, that everyone focused on, what you're really hitting on is we've also moved to this realm of unpredictability and this the sense of uh, you don't always know where your data source is going to be coming from and yeah. what you need to do with that data. And there needs to be more emphasis on being able to do real-time analysis, but also to do that ad hoc analysis on the entire data set. And it's right. funny because we've talked about big data for a long time, but is it really big data if in order to go through your data set, you have to downsample and look at a subset because you don't have the, the compute to, to look at the whole thing in a reasonable right. amount of time to make business decisions? Right. It's, uh, it's, it's arguably not. And so that, that end of things, um, it's, it, this seems to come up a lot because I'll get, I'll get, remember, I'm usually talking to developers and I'll get questions like, um, and I hope it's okay to just talk freely about the products in the marketplace, but we're like, well, should I use Kafka or should I use Spark? And, ah, it's not really an or there, you know, um, there's, there's, there's interesting overlaps between parts of those things, but, um, the question is really, uh, how should I do my, how should I do my ad hoc analysis over the whole data set, like you said, and that is absolutely an essential part of, you know, any large information system. There's the real time stuff. There's the streaming platform. And if we have time, we could talk about that. You know, Kafka has this very bold vision for how your information systems should be architected. But at no point do we ever say, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, real time is the end of things. There's always this sense where, of course, your data is going to be archived somewhere and you need to be able to do analysis over that entire data set in an offline way. You know, uh, that's that's not uh, baked algorithms where, you know, you're generating these real time results in milliseconds, but you need to be able to do that kind of exploration of that data. Um, yeah, that's after the fact. Yeah. So, so 
What's your take on, uh, you know, some of this stuff is, uh, you know, everyone talked about IoT and the edge for, for years. And, you know, I feel like that that world really focused on um, building new offerings at the edge and focusing a lot on the security. You know, do I use PKI? How do I secure it? What protocols do I use? Things like that. Sure. Yeah, because the edge, you know, that's a scary thing there. Yeah, it's a very scary thing. But I think the thing that's really interesting is the value of the edge is really the data and what you do with that data. And so, um, you know, what are your thoughts about where the world is headed in terms of the disruption of what you could do with data? You know, and let me give you a couple of examples. You know, we, we were at uh, NVIDIA's GTC last week and we saw someone drive the virtual car where a real person gets into a virtual car and they drive a real car with no person in it out on the street. Um, you know, so that's that's one example. I then think about other things like uh, Facebook and the Twitter bot um, scandal that happened in 2017, where two uh, Facebook bots actually formulated their own language and started communicating yes. with one another. So um, th there's a scary element of data, right? And people are, can go down this road of fear, but there's also this huge opportunity, which means we have to think about data differently. We have to train people differently in terms of new jobs, and kind of embrace the opportunity. What, what's your thought around uh, what this all means and where the world is going? Yeah, well, um, I don't know that I have any anything to add there that, that hasn't been said. Um, one thing that I, I sometimes am a little, uh, let me let me start with some skepticism, I guess, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll start with some skepticism, then I'll end with, uh, some some hope for why we're why we're still doing the right thing in the lines of work that we're in. Um, one concern I have with what we've historically called big data. I gave a lightning talk a few years ago called uh, "Confessions of an Unlikely Big Data Skeptic." Mm -hmm. um, is that sometimes you know what we're doing with those large data sets is still fundamentally regression analysis. Right, we're we're doing induction. That's the that's the the logical reasoning thing that we're doing. Um, and even with very large data sets, with complex adaptive systems, it can be it's, it's easy to fool yourself doing a regression analysis over the system. Uh, it's easy to leave out variables, and we see this in various parts of the social sciences where they have difficulty reproducing results. Um, and the, when you dig into those things, like what's what's going on and why is reproducibility a problem there, it's not always that their data set was too small. Uh, and larger data sets don't always fix that problem. So there's this, the back of my mind, there's always this, like my inner philosopher is back there saying, well, you know, this is epistemologically suspect and, and be careful. Um, but uh, coming back around, um, you know, I'm glad we have these tools because sometimes they give us you know, at least a little flashlight, and 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 the alternative is completely being in the dark. So yes, I would rather do an epistemologically risky analysis on a very large data set, as long as I understand what my limitations are and I'm careful about assigning causality and, and investing resources when conclusions are not totally solid and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, a little bit of me is is the the oddly placed skeptic here, but. Uh, the fact is, especially when you get into cool things like edge um, and you know really incredible explosion of data sources and the ability to do real-time computation on this stuff, not always just 
uh, next day batch or batch four hours from now, uh, you know, like we were doing in early days of Hadoop, but but really uh, truly low latency calculations on large data sets. I think you do now have tools to expose trends uh, that just were never visible to you before. And what's yeah. important to me is that we've got analysis tools and visualization tools when we're trying to do draw conclusions about very large data sets uh, that we keep a human being in the loop uh, to be able to really get the insight. You know, you, you, you visualize the data and the interesting insight usually comes down to a person looking at a chart, some sort of unusual chart and saying, oh, that's strange. Uh, and that kind of, oh, that's strange thing, I think with the tool sets that, that you guys make, we have the opportunity to have that, oh, that strange moment where we just wouldn't have before. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. I mean, if you think about this from an enterprise standpoint, those that can actually implement the systems that can allow them to do that um, analysis in the shortest period of time and feed that back into their business um, are going to have the edge, right? Uh, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> the edge to to you know outcompete their competitors. Um, and it, it goes beyond that human ad hoc discovery, right? It's the machine learning on top of that that can automate that and really make that powerful. But it, it has to be all tied to an operational thinking or system that brings this all together, which to me de makes us need to deconstruct how this stuff all fits together and, and think about consolidation. Yeah. Hey, so Tim, uh, shifting gears a little bit here, I wanted to kind of circle back on on your role at Confluent. I mean, so you're, you know, as a director of developer experience, you're out there working with developers who are, you know, driving Kafka projects and that kind of thing. So I'm curious as to, you know, what kind of trends you're seeing in terms of, you know, adoption of Kafka um, based on industries or use cases, that kind of thing. The most interesting one to me is, um, Kafka as a substrate for uh, a microservices estate, for a, for a collection of microservices. Uh, and what's interesting, why I like it so much is because it's so different from uh, Kafka, the big data tool. And in, in its early days, Kafka was considered a big data technology. It was a big giant pipe for getting a bunch of stuff from there over into HDFS, you know, wherever there was. Um, and now, um, that's there still, that's fine. It, it is in fact a big pipe and if you need a big pipe, it's great, but not everybody does. Um, lots of people though, at more moderate scales are refactoring to microservices. And so the coolest trend to me is that one. And this is totally cross-cutting, right? It doesn't matter what industry you're in, the, that particular architectural mega trend is a thing and people are doing it. And, uh, you know, if you, if you put your hipster beanie on, um, you, you're inclined to kind of chuckle and say, oh, microservices, it's just a fad. It, it really probably is a good idea that has legs and, and will be with us for probably the better part of a decade is what I'd predict. And people using Kafka as a means of integrating microservices, super, super fascinating to me. Um, and we might not want to, you know, you guys will dig as deeply into it as you want. It could be a little bit off topic for our purposes here, but um, it's a thing that gets me excited because, um, it's so right. Um, you know, people have been having trouble with microservices. It's a difficult thing to refactor a monolith into into a bunch of little programs because it 
there are all kinds of things that are that, that go wrong when you do that. Um, yep. And Kafka seems to be like the the winning way to solve that problem. Yeah, so I, I don't think it's off topic at all. And, and actually, just for our audience, when you're talking about microservices, we're essentially talking about the old world of building applications was you built a monolithic app. In this case, you're now um, decomposing it into a lot of little services that communicate with one another. And because there are lots of little services, there's white space between them and lots of communication that's happening. Yeah, between yeah, yeah. Good, good, good call clarifying that jargon. Because back when you wrote a monolith, and monolith just means uh, one big giant program. You have one big giant code base. And if you want to change a little part of it, you have to redeploy the whole big program. And in a monolith, you know, you break it into pieces. You have different people or different teams thinking about different modules inside that thing. But for those modules to communicate when it's a monolith, it's super cheap. It's easy yeah. for parts of a program to pass data back and forth. But now with microservices, you've broken it into a bunch of little programs, each of which is, you know, think of it as a small enough program to fit inside your head. But they're deployed on, on separate instances, separate servers. And for them to communicate now is not so cheap. It's slower, and there are, there are these other complexities that arise. So you get advantages in evolvability of the system and maintainability and deployment and all that stuff, but this massive disadvantage of, you know, oh, no, now I need to communicate over the network when I want one service to talk to another. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's right on. And I, I think uh, it's interesting because uh, there is building microservices because it's valuable to your business, and then there's the trend of people just trying to decompose monolithic apps for the sake of decomposing monolithic apps. And so uh, I think companies are really struggling to figure out the strategy around how they, they do that and when they do that, which is pretty interesting. But I, I think all the data that comes off those different services to take it full circle, if you go back to the car, you could almost think of the car being decomposed into thousands of little microservices that are communicating with one another. And all of that data, someone needs to make sense of all that data and understand what it means in terms of predictive maintenance, of what it means in terms of uh, details around how the car usage is occurring, you know, tying it to um, the user and their data. I mean, there's so many interesting ways you could leverage um, the data from microservices. But first and foremost, you need to be able to collect it, aggregate it into something meaningful, and then do that, that ad hoc discovery that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So let's... Uh... Let's talk through that. By the way, that that also I'm happen to be in the market for for a new car right now, and it'll I'm going to buy a new car. And now, once again, you're discouraging me from doing this because now I'm going to be thinking of my vehicle that I hurl down the highway and at high speeds as being a bunch of microservices. So, <laughs> my life into my hands. But with that thought in mind, uh, let's keep talking through this. If you think of the car, because there's all these processors processors all over it, and they're talking to each other. And it so happens that in actual automotive electronics, you know, there's a there is even a messaging bus that they use. Uh, but by analogy, you could think of that as as uh, Kafka providing that messaging layer underneath, if it were an actual information system. But you have all these processors in the brakes, in the engine, in the dashboard, and the in the you know, they're all over the place. They're all talking, um, and they communicate by passing messages to each other. One processor. Uh, perceives an event and it's it's controlling its own part of the system and it says well okay this thing happened hey everybody else uh this thing happened and i'll put the message out on the message bus and the other modules in the car that are interested can pick that up and 
maybe one of them will display it on the dashboard display or another one of it another one of them will say oh that means i have to lock the doors or something like that yet the the processor that generated the event doesn't care who else does whatever with it those other services it's their responsibility to consume the messages they're interested in and take the actions that they need cause cause side effects out in the world like they need to but so now we've got all those messages. The system is operating in real time. You know, I, I put it in drive, the doors lock, uh, good. The car is, is basically a safe system, but all this stuff has happened. And we've got this history of all of these messages uh, in these message queues underlying all our services. And gee whiz, what are we gonna do with that? Um, maybe I could just like not worry about that. I'd say, well, the system's working, good enough. You know, the doors lock when I drive, I'm safe. Um, but you might want to do smart things about predictive analytics. You might, for example, say, here's this pattern of driving that happens, and this kind of person is more likely to need tires. And so if I figure that out and email them a coupon, I can get them to come into the dealer and buy those sweet, sweet dealer tires and you know, make more, uh, capture more of the lifetime revenue of that customer uh, by virtue of that. So that that's the that's the the ad hoc at, at yep. some point that starts with ad hoc analysis that's kind of where you guys come in yep no i love it because it's it to, comes back to how do we make people's lives better in the world yeah and that that's the cool thing is as you go through all these different experiences i mean there's there's a fine line right you have to be careful about not being creepy and dangerous and respecting privacy as well but if done correctly you can really change people's experiences so the experiences that my son is going to have when he's my age which is quite young, um, are going to be yes. quite yes, different from what I experienced today. And I, I love I love that. Um, okay. hey, hey, so I know we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I do have an important set of questions for you because yes. working with developers and doing community and stuff like that, I want to really get into the mind of how developers think. Mm -hmm. And if I said casual, business casual, formal wear, what would be in your mind the thing a developer would choose to wear when you hear Got it. categories? So, um, I mean, to be honest with myself, I, I pretty much I write email these days, not code. It's been only a small number of years, but I still have the heart of a developer. And so my answer would be, well, it depends what I'm doing. But <laughs> if right, like if I'm I'm gonna I'm actually gonna go to a musical uh, downtown Denver tomorrow, I might wear something formal. But um, the uh, yeah, uh, casual. Right. If it's a meetup, if it's work, uh, if it's a conference, if I am functioning in a professional capacity, it's casual. Uh, it's jeans and a T-shirt. Every once in a while, like I'll wear a sport coat, but I'll take it off if I'm going to present. Um, and that I just wear that because I think it looks nice. But um, <laughs> I, it's, I thought it's you casual. Would have, that would have been formal. Um, yeah, right. Right. No, if you say formal, that means tuxedo. But um, it, it certainly. Yeah. T-shirt, hoodie, jeans that is appropriate uh, developer attire. And honestly, if you if you wear a tie, um, and nobody in business except in finance really wears ties anymore, that's, that's a little bit dated, but um, dressing too nicely, too formally, to a developer audience communicates the opposite of what you want to communicate. Yeah, uh, you, become, you become marketing. Yeah, I did. Uh, and, and just to speak frankly, uh, dumb, it, it means you're, you're not a smart person. Um, and that's a little bit of an exaggeration and not everyone would want to admit to that. But I think that is the, the processing that we do. 
Uh, you know, I have it on good authority, though, that bow ties are making a comeback. So, so if you want to hipster it, exactly, exactly. If you can find something like that, then that's in the bow tie. That you know, totally legit. And I honestly, I, I, I never want to defend sloppy dressing, but it's it's totally cool. Yeah, just dress. Yeah. Formal. I, I will say, with uh, without naming names or companies, at GTC, I went to an event where a CTO spoke, and he he had the hoodie on, which was cool. He had like very uh, um, Grateful Dead like pants with sandals. It was really funny. Yeah, that, um, that would be a West Coast company, right? Uh, no, no, actually. But I, I will not disclose any more information. No, no, don't, don't. Okay. Um, hey, hey, Tim. So, um, you know, I, kind of on this topic here before we wrap up, I know you do a lot of, of speaking stuff and uh, pr present at a lot of conferences. You got anything uh, coming up uh, soon that you're excited about? Yeah, absolutely. I do a few things. So, um, I mean, the biggest thing, shameless plug, would be the Kafka Summit in, in London uh, in the third week of this month. Um, and uh, that's a shameless plug. It's, it's all sold out, so you can't, I can't be selling tickets. Um, but yeah, that's the 23rd and 24th. I'll be in London. Um, I'll be in um, Cologne, Germany at a meetup on the 18th of April. Um, I'll be at the uh, Istanbul Tech Talks in uh, on April 17th uh, in Istanbul. So so plenty of that and probably some meetups in Atlanta and L.A. at the very beginning of May. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, we'll uh, we'll throw some links to uh, where some of those places you're going to be speaking at in the in the show notes. Oh, nice. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'll hook you up with our with our team in London. Maybe you guys can sync up. I'm not sure if they're going to be at the conference or not, but uh, it might be cool for you guys to meet. So absolutely, absolutely. Cool, cool. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, joining us for our fifth episode of Telekinesis. Data Always Data. my pleasure. And uh, thank you, everyone, as always, for listening. And we look forward to talking to you more soon. Take care. Thanks, Tim. You bet.